The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see your smiling faces today. Good morning, Scott. Morning, Mitch. Good morning, guys. All right, everybody's getting ready for the holidays, Christmas just around the corner. But, you know, I, I guess for a financial planner, this is a pretty busy time of year, is it? Yeah, it actually is there, Scott. It's kind of interesting. A lot of people think, okay, I guess you kind of just take it easy from here on in. And, uh, sure. you know, our P season is January, February, more or less. So, uh, yeah, it's actually turns out December turns out to be one of the busiest times for a financial planner. Um, and And I guess the real reason is we are going through a ton of appointments right now for year-end tax planning. Right. And it's about trying to maneuver the tax and their incomes and using RIF or RSP money to add more or maybe crystallizing capital gains or maybe even losses if there's any losses for you know, net loss selling. So it's all the tax planning has to happen before the end of the year because you can't do it in January. The year's over. So 2023 is when you have to do it. And you really often don't know what your tax situation is going to be until the later part of the year. So it's it's not the client's fault at all. It's just all the data is is coming in at this time. So mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so this is the time we we are you know extremely busy. And again, that's really a financial planner too. So if if your advisor isn't discussing anything to do with tax planning or estate planning at this time of year, well, they're probably more what we would consider investment planners. They're simply looking at the investment side, which, of course, we do also. But the tax planning is a guaranteed way to improve your situation as opposed to simply, you know, what what are the markets up to and how you should invest? Absolutely important, too, but you should marry the two. Now, the other reason we're very busy at this stage is they introduced a new product, if you will, um, called the first time home buyer savings account. And unlike RSPs, there is not a February 28th or March 1st deadline. It is a December 31st deadline. And so, yes, I know Mitch has been extremely busy. I'm getting a lot of, you know, a lot of the younger clients, particularly, that are going to take advantage of this. Yeah, I got to get that in before December 31st, even if you're not going to use it. Um, But uh, yeah, as we've mentioned on this show before, the housing market has been shifting a lot. And if you look at the last bunch of years, it's certainly been a seller's market for many years. Now, if you look at the market now and you really actually dig deep and see what's going on, the buyers have all the power. Even though the stats may show sometimes otherwise and realtors may skew it to show otherwise, the buyers really do have all the power right now. And they can throw offers that may be below asking and get them to be finalized at this moment. And uh, so how are people saving up and paying for these? And is a good position to be for a first-time home buyer. And that one account that we used to use was the RSP to buy your first home. And that would have been the first time, uh, the first home account. Um, and that you got to use $35,000 of your RSP if you had that much in there, but you had to pay it back within 16 years. So it was a great program and it allowed you to use some pre-tax money, but you did have to pay it back. And as Don just mentioned, the new account that came out this year in 2023 
is the first time home buyers account. Uh, FHSA, as you will, uh, all these acronyms. We got the RRSP, TFSA, FHSA. And so <laughs> that one good. doesn't kind of go off the tongue that easy, does it, Mitch? That one? No, you have no. to be very, very careful with that one, whatever, whatever way you're trying to say. <laughs> yeah, it. yeah. And make sure you spell it correctly, too. Mm hmm. <laughs> But uh, I'm sure just like I get a lot of TSFAs instead of TFSA, I'll get a lot of F -A -F -A FSHSA or something. So yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing that more as a, as we are now going to be in crunch mode for the next month at least to get these accounts open. Because as Don mentioned, there is a, a deadline to get your account open by December 31st to just get you the room, which is $8,000. But also, if you're going to contribute to it and you want a tax deduction, you're going to have to contribute this year as well, unlike an RSP, which you would get uh, in before the end of February. So each year you get $8,000 um, to open it. So this year, if you open it, you you get yourself $8,000 a room, even if you contribute or don't contribute. And then next year, you'd also get $8,000 in room. So even if you're not going to contribute this year, it's still going to be beneficial to open it. And that also applies to if you have a spouse, you should both open one, even if neither of you are going to contribute to it, because then you're going to get $16,000 in room between the two of you, between the two of your accounts. And then next year, between the combined your two accounts, you have 32000 in room. And one good thing about the FHSA is that your partner or spouse can actually contribute to your FHSA. So... There's going to be no attribution uh, if, you're con if your spouse does contribute to your FHSA, even if they don't have the funds available, you can give the money to them to contribute and they're going to be and they'll get a tax deduction. So if they do have an income, they're going to be able to get a tax deduction, not you, but it's still going to be able to grow in their name tax free and you're going to be able to use that towards a first time, a first home. So a good thing to do with some spousal um, strategies right there is to each of you to open it. So the maximum lifetime between the two but for each account is $40,000. So over the next five years, you're going to get $8,000 of room per year. So if, after that, you'll have $40,000 of contribution room. And a great thing about this is one that's going to grow tax-free and you're going to get a tax deduction every single time that you contribute to this account. But you're also um, going to be able to take it out uh, tax-free. And if it grows to, let's say you put in 40 and it grows to 100,000, you get to take out 100,000 towards your new home versus the RSP home buyers. They capped it out at 35,000. So, and that would be between the two of you. So if there was you and a spouse, you'd have $70,000 between the two of you uh, versus this. If you, each of you have an FHSA and you contribute $40,000 and it grows to $100,000 each, then you have 200,000 between the two of you to put towards a down payment. And it's all tax-free and you don't have to pay it back over those 16 years, unlike the RSP homebuyers plan. So there is some great benefits to this as well as not using your RSP room. So if you, if you are accumulating RSP room, which you do, as long as you have a job, um, you're going to be able to keep uh, growing that contribution room instead of using it for an RSP contribution, because you're going to be able to use this FHSA and contribute to that instead. So there are lots of benefits to this account and it would be the first and foremost, the one that I would want people to use instead of using the RSP for the home buyers, 
because you're going to be able to save that RSP room and not pay it back. Yeah, it's almost like double dipping here, Mitch. You know, you you're still got your you're still building up RSP room, and yet you're get you're also building up FHSA room, and they both are similar in the same way that they are tax deduction, like an RSP. Um, so you get that. Um, the big difference, of course, is you don't have to pay back um, the FHSA, such as the home buyer's plan, as you mentioned. And and that is a big deal. Like you already bought a house and now you got to pay this money back. You've got a mortgage. It's a tough time to be a home buyer anyway. And I know it's your own money and you did save tax when you put money into the RSP. So it was at least something. But this FHSA blows the other 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 system out of the water. Yeah, it's it's not even close to be to be totally honest with you. Because uh, paying it back over the sixteen years, even if it's thirty five thousand divided by sixteen at that point, it, that you still don't get that tax deduction again. You're just paying it back, and it's re re adding to the RSP so that you don't get that amount added to your income. Because if you don't pay it back, you then have to pay tax on the amount that you didn't pay back every single year. And, right? and that's a fair bit. It's two hundred forty three dollars a month if on thirty five thousand is what you would have to pay every month just so you didn't have to pay tax on it. That works out to about just short of 3,000 a year, $2,916. So if you don't pay it back, you get $2,900 added to your income. And if you're in the highest tax bracket, you're almost paying about $1,500 a year excess tax by not paying it back. You know, another interesting point to all of this is remember, uh, I remember taking advantage of the first time home buyers plan years ago when it first came out and mm -hmm. everybody thought, wow, this is amazing to be able to do this. And now we have, and, and you're talking about how this uh, product is far more superior than what that is. It shows you and makes you ask the question, well, why is that the case? It just shows you the state of our housing industry now and how people really just need the help to get on board. Absolutely. No, that's yeah. a very good point, Scott. Yeah, it, it it's a little curious why they didn't just increase the RSP amount that you can use. I, I'm not going to complain because this program's significantly better, but they could have just raised the amount that you could use from your RSP and have it paid back. But I guess the government felt generous when they were making this account because this is such a great account in so many ways. Um so because the other one was capped out at 35,000 now you're looking at down payments well what's 35,000 going to get you at a down payment not very much these days versus now if you have an FHSA and you you have you put $40,000 in you you wait a bunch of years for it to grow and then you get to use it it could actually be the amount that you need for a down payment especially if you combine it with a spousal with a spouse one too um, so that brings me into my next topic here is that the, the spouse could affect your eligibility, actually. So you do have to be careful with this account a little bit because there are some tricky rules. So the first time homebuyers benefit is defined as someone who has not in the current or previous four calendar years lived in a principal residence owned in whole or in part by the individual or their spouse. So that also applies to common law partners under the tax law. So it's important to open the FHSA before you get married or live with someone who already owns a home. Um, so make sure you get that open before you do that, because if you open it after, you're not going to qualify for that. And you're no longer going to be able to have the FHSA or qualify for that. And if you do open it prior, even if your partner or spouse has already bought a house, uh, you're actually going to be able to 
keep contributing to that FHSA and buy a home later and use that tax-free out of the FHSA. So you need to open it before you move into your common law or your spouse house if they already own one. And another point here is you can actually use your spousal RSP dollars to contribute. So suppose you've set up a spousal RSP and a spousal RSP is which you contribute to your partner spouse's um, RSP. So a spousal RSP, you get the tax deduction and you're hoping that uh, you're going to wait at least three years for your, your spouse to withdraw from that. So the tax is now on their plate, which is likely it's should be less as long as you have a good financial planner. Uh, otherwise, it's going to be taxed in your name if you take it in under three years. So a good thing to do with the FHSA here, which is kind of a cool program, is that you can actually transfer from a spousal RSP to their FHSA. So you're going to still have to wait, though. So if, you're, if you haven't contributed to that in one year or in the prior two calendar years, you're, it's still going to be taxed in your name. But if it is after that, you're going to be able to contribute that to the FHSA and take that out and put that into the house, which is just it's just a great little, not, not loophole, but it's a great little strategy to use here in terms of contributing from the spousal RSP to the FHSA and get it from your name into your, into your spouse's name for tax purposes. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more, donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. What is estate planning? Let's ask the burning question, Don. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. A lot of people say, oh, I need an estate plan. And, and for most people, they're just thinking, okay, I need to get a will done. And that is that is the centerpiece of a, a true estate plan. Is But what is written in the will is the key here. So first of all, you should have some goals um, before you even start the process. And things such as preserving the value of the estate as much as possible. So that would be ta uh, more of a tax planning goal. Perhaps uh, enhancing the value of the estate. How do we make this value even get larger for the next generation or, or your beneficiaries, ensuring the delivery of the assets get to the intended beneficiaries. How important is that? Okay, extremely important. Consider your individual goals, but also kind of have this, if, if possible, the attempt to maintain family harmony. And that is so important. Um, we've been in this business uh, personally for 38 years, and I would suggest the vast majority go very smoothly. But transparency is a key here. And every so often you say, oh, boy, that one, that one didn't go well. because there, and, and it really affects family harmony. And we're not talking a, a weekend problem. This is a lifetime problem that mm. usually maintains. So it's extremely important. Um, it gets more complicated, though, when there's blended families. And when you think, you know, somewhere close to 50% of more marriages do not work out quite often. Obviously, that 
constitutes a blended family. You may have kids from your first marriage. Your spouse may have kids from his or her first marriage. And no problem. Well, if one passes away, you just think, oh, I'll go to my spouse. And when and he or she passed away, it goes to the kids. And let's say, for example, you had three kids and she had three kids. Um, it sounds interesting, you know, shouldn't be an issue when you think about it. But the problem is most people don't actually give it a lot of thought. So if you pass away, generally speaking, your estate goes to your wife or your husband, depending on where you are. And uh, you think, okay, well, and upon her death, what does her will say? Well, it may have said at the time of doing the will that, okay, half the assets go to you know your family and half goes to her family. Well, there's often a, quite a lag period between one death to the next. And is there a potential of a falling out between your kids and, and, your, and the spouses? And this is, again, that's not their mother or father. This is a, call it a stepmother or father. So things could happen and there's no guarantee that your assets will end up or at least will end up at your kids. And so you really need to plan this out properly. And so very, very, and I just recently had this happen. So I had both families, unfortunately, they're, they're unfortunately they're both not, have not passed away, but they've become disabled. And so you're seeing both families now are, are talking. Well, this adds to the transparency, which is great, but we did the estate planning 10 years ago so that you know one spouse could live in the house while the other one, if one got sick or passed away, and it wouldn't end up having a, a burden. But again, this is all about estate planning. So we had to redo the will in, in that particular case a couple times as the you know, relationship grew and, and also as they became more dependent. So what could actually happen? New spouse gets remarried and your kids end up with nothing. And so a properly um, structured plan would make sure that your new spouse and your family are taken care of. So not only, you know, if you pass away, your new spouse is okay, but your kids from your previous marriage are looked after. And this is extremely important. So I would say that this is something most people do not want to think about. And so therefore they, they might delay that thought, but they also don't know who to talk to because this is a kind of a big subject to talk about. And you need a trusted advisor at your side that has no skin in the game per se, is totally unbiased, and is just coming up with a formulating a, a perfectly clear plan to make it work for both sides. And I, you know, it's such a great feeling when you walk away from those appointments knowing that you've solved a, a, a potentially huge problem. And it's not a problem now because everybody's alive. It's a problem upon the death of one of the spouses. So. You want to do this, you want to try to minimize income tax at the same time, costs, um, provide for dependents after you're gone, Minim minimize delays on that final estate. You may have to maintain control from beyond the grave, and there's ways to do that. Minimize work for your executors and the survivors. Now, the executor is the one is, is the one that does all, basically looks at the will and does all the transactions and does whatever your wishes are, your executor, he, he or she is the one looking after that. Ensure charitable objectives are also achieved. So there's a lot that could go on inside an estate plan. So does fair mean equal? Well, I know we've had this conversation many times. Fair doesn't always mean equal. When dividing an estate between children, if they don't get the exact same amount, is that considered fair? Well, 
I guess the uh, the person passing away should really know how much did that child really have an impact on their life or were, did, were they just gone for the last 20 years and they showed up at the reading of the will? Okay, we've seen that too. And so in that case, and meanwhile, you have another child that's looking after somebody who's who's got some dementia and doing all the things later in the last 10 years. And uh, is that fair that they get it 50-50? I, I also, to, to go to your point there, I, I have some clients that um, they help out their kids more while they're alive versus the other ones, they don't need the help at the moment. So fair and equal, um, it, it totally applies to that as well. Maybe you help them out with 100,000 while they're alive for one kid and then, well, the other kid is going to get $100,000 more in the estate. So there's an, other ways to break even there. Just, just because you help out someone when they're alive versus when you're passed away. Um, those are also considerations to have. Yeah, absolutely, Mitch. In fact, um, you know, helping out people and getting them to see some, you know, enhancing their life, giving them a leg up. You talked about the FHSA. You know, we're seeing a lot of our clients funding their kids' FHSA. That's the discussions we're having now. So they're putting the $8,000 in now for their child so that, you know, five years later, there's $40,000 there. And, you know, what, what a great feeling as a parent to see you're helping out their kids get their first house. And, yeah, so, again, fair is not always equal. Um, the one thing I do question is, okay, well, my daughter's doing fantastic. She's got a great job and marriage is doing well. They own a business. They've got lots of money. My son, on the other hand, isn't doing quite as well. So I think I should give more money to my son. And I, I often look at that question. I'm thinking, okay, it's very socialistic. I'm going to simply help out the one that didn't go to school, perhaps, did not work as hard, um, maybe had a couple bad breaks. Who knows what the cases are? And I'm not going to help out the one that was successful, worked her butt off, and going to school. So I bring that exactly like that to my client's attention to make it sure because they see the struggle of one and as a parent oh i want to help that one out and you see the other one taking trips and enjoying life well should you penalize one because they were more successful and i think that's the only answer person you can answer that question is you and what is the reaction when you say that it's actually kind of interesting scott that's a great question it's usually like wow you know what i never thought of it that way but trust me the one that wasn't getting the money would definitely we think that way. Yeah. Says, okay, I, I've spent at least half the time. I've done just as much. I've perhaps even supported my mother even more so than the other one. And yet I'm not getting any of the inheritance because I'm successful or less yeah. inheritance. Yeah. It makes no sense to me, but this comes up frequently. So again, fair doesn't always mean equal. And, and that's and that's why you need a, a neutral advisor, right? Because sometimes parents can't necessarily see that. They see one kid, potentially struggling and one kid doing well well and they feel bad for the one kid because obviously it's their kid and so parental instincts comes in there oh, i should help that one out more so they can get up to the other kid's level well even though the other kid just busted their butt working hard helping out as much as they can so it does take a neutral advisor to kind of point that out and maybe open their eyes a little bit and, and perhaps and, again, and perhaps the parent feels like, well, I failed with this one, so I have to help more. <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. A, you know what? We just asked the questions, but again, the questions are so important because they lead to the dialogue, as opposed to a, an investment advisor 
they're not having these conversations. They're talking about, okay, it's time to rebalance and adding more to your fixed income. Okay, yes, that will help. That will rebalance in your portfolio. But these are the big questions. How do you make sure your wishes of your, your lifetime investments, your total net, net worth is split up the way you'd like to have it split up when you pass on? And we've got all sorts of case studies, but here's an interesting one here. Let's say you, you have two homes and make a very simple will. Your whole net worth is two homes. One's a cottage and it's worth a million dollars. You paid 200,000 for it years ago, and it's now worth a million. The other home is also worth a million dollars here in the here in town. You also paid 200,000 for it. And it's simple, you know, and you're thinking, you know what, I'm just gonna give one home to one child and one home to the other. This is easy because the one child loves the cottage and spends all the time. The other one really doesn't care about it. And this is gonna work out quite well. well if you put it in joint names, that would have actually triggered the gain on the cottage. So quite often what we'll see is the parent will say, I'm just going to, let's say the son likes the cottage. I'm going to put the cottage in joint names with the son. And I'm going to put the house in the joint name with the daughter. We definitely do not agree with this. Okay. But first of all, the reason is, is in, as soon as you put it in joint names with the son, you have now sold half your cottage to your son and you're going to trigger a gain. And when you put your house in joint names with your daughter, you will not trigger any gain because it is your principal residence. However, any future growth on that cot on the principal resident is, is going to be taxed in your daughter's name. If she already has a house, she will pay tax on that growth. So what they'll often do is in the will, it's just say, okay, you know what? I'm giving my cottage to my son. I'm giving my uh, house to my daughter. Straightforward, easy peasy. Well, the estate now has to pay tax on this. So on this, there's no estate, there's no tax on your principal residence, quite easy. However, on the cottage, you made $800,000. It's grown $800,000 since you owned it. That's $800,000 capital gain. You pay tax on half of that, the estate does, which is 400,000. And let's say to make it straightforward, it, half of it goes to the government. So $200,000 of estate tax. Well. This son, and, and now the estate has to pay 200 grand. Well, there's only, there's only, um, there's $2 million of real estate there. They, they have it. And what happens is the son's now got to pay 100 grand in income tax in order to get that cottage. What if they don't have the 100 grand? And quite often that is the case. The daughter doesn't really care because she's going to probably sell that house anyway. So she's going to take the funds and sell it. So what ends up happening is the son ends up with no cottage because they don't have the money to pay the $100,000 income tax. So what can you do? There's a few things you can do. You can look at maybe getting life insurance to fund that gap. And if the son really wants it, maybe they can pay the life insurance policy for a couple hundred thousand dollars. So they pay the premiums, they're the beneficiary. So they get the money. And as soon as their parents pass away, they now have this extra money to pay the tax on the cottage. So they get the cottage. That's one way. The other way to do it is to say, here's the wishes you would like, but it basically allows the son first right of refusal on the cottage and they can buy it from the estate. So basically I'm splitting my estate 50, 50 I'm, you know, half my, half my ass go to my son, half go to the daughter, easy. And you can even as a note, if my son would like to buy the cottage, they get first right to buy it from my daughter. 
and it's done at fair market value. They might get the family discount. It depends if the siblings get along well. But you know, it's just one way to do it, and it it usually works a lot better. So getting an up-to-date will is really the centerpiece of an estate plan. You need to find out who the executors are and who you trust to look after this. Normally, normally speaking, if the kids are, are mature enough or old enough, you'll name your ch children as the executors. Um, your will plan should really look at the treatment of your assets after death, including your vacation properties, as I mentioned, your businesses. You know, depending how complicated your estate is, it could, it could you really need to list them all down. Really put down any charitable givings. I know last week I spoke about charitable giving, and perhaps you could address a lot of that before you pass away, but it's extremely important to have that in your will, and it will help with some of the estate taxes. As I mentioned, protecting an inheritance. If they're very young or financially irresponsible, you may want to put money into a trust. And a trust that is inside the will is called a testamentary trust. Okay. And so now you'll need a trustee. So you may name another person, a, a friend or a family member to look after that trust until your son or daughter is old enough or you think mature enough to look after this. So you, there's a lot of things you need to consider. Blended families I talked about, common law couples, special needs beneficiaries. Okay. And if you're on your second marriage, uh, we have had it where people did forgot about changing beneficiaries in things such as their RSPs and so forth, and they end up going to the ex-spouse. And it hasn't happened in our, you know, our clients. It has happened with our clients, but having fun, say, with a group RSP elsewhere or, or an RSP held somewhere else because they didn't go through the change of beneficiary. Extremely important to tie this together, but I guess the starting point is, is to sit down and have an estate planning meeting because your financial planner should know your overall financial net worth, where your investments are, where everything is. But now you need to talk about what's important to the client. How do you want to see this transferred so that everybody's happy and you think it is fair, but not necessarily equal. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Taking a break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. Call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. All right, your year-end planning to-do list. It's that time, Mitch. Yeah, where has the year gone? It's already pretty much mid-December at this really? point. Like we're talking a few more weeks and we're at 2024. Oh, <laughs> wow, man. Wow. It doesn't feel too long ago that it was uh, your 60th birthday, Don. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> thanks, Mitch. And uh, just actually <laughs> it was January. And in under a month now, it's 61. So oh, yeah, that's there you go. I just that's thought nice. I'd remind you. I know your, your yeah. CPP is mailing you once in a while. <laughs> 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 nothing like your kid to remind you of your age 
Yes, that's true. And but and to bring charts as well and graphs, yeah. that's something. <laughs> well, I mean, you got to support your data, right? That's so, right. I, I come prepared. <laughs> but oh, uh, there, there is a list of things that people should be doing for their year end. And I know Don touched on a few before just briefly. But another another one here is to review and file your benefit claims. Uh, are the all the benefits you're enrolled to, uh, do they do you still need them? You need to review your benefits portal. Um, I know it's not exciting at all, but it can definitely be beneficial. Uh, you may identify areas to to trim, or maybe even you might be looking to add some coverage. You may have had some life changes this year that could support some changes in your coverage. And looking into that kind of stuff is beneficial to do before the end of the year. There could be some mental health support, some massages, some financial wellness, uh, maybe. And a lot of these expire by the end of the year. So December, you might maybe take that time and get that massage that you're entitled to get. Um, it could be a good time before, before Christmas to get that done. So another one is to make your donations before the end of the year. So to get your donation receipt to be applicable for your 2023 tax filing, you'll need to get this money to your charity of your choice before the year closes. Um, at that time, you can get the uh, you can get the tax slip, but you need to get the donation in before the end of this year to get that tax slip. So obviously, lots of charities are looking for looking for funds towards the end of the year around Christmas, um, finding the best one that you uh, click with the most is a good thing to look at doing before the end of this year. Another one here is <clears throat> Don just went through a bunch of this here is actually take a look at your wills and insurance plans, especially if you've experienced a major life event in the past year, like welcoming a child, moving, changing jobs, divorcing or marrying, um, potentially selling a business. Uh, you're you're going to want to ensure your will reflects your true wishes. And I know Don just touched upon true wishes with the will in great detail. So that is something that should be reviewed by the end of this year. There could You could be having some big life events that totally affect that will and need to be updated. Another one is make your RESP plan contributions before December 31st. So the RESP is the Education Savings Plan, another acronym. Um, but this one to get the grant, uh, you need to contribute before the end of this year. So, especially if your kid turns 17. So the last year that you can contribute to get the grant for the education savings plan is the year your kid turns 17, uh, December 31st. So you could potentially be eligible to get a thousand dollars in grant. If you haven't been contributing all that much to your RASP, if you haven't maxed out the grant yet, you do get to catch up on one year. So you could put in $5,000, get the 20% uh, grant contribution, and that would be $1,000 in grant. So that has to be done by December 31st. So you do have a few more weeks to get that done. Another one here is if you're thinking about a major purchase uh, and TFSA might be the place to take it. Um, the timing of your TS TFSA can impact when you're going to get that room back in your account, which is a lot of planners. Um, they like to do the withdrawal before year end, and it totally makes sense to do so. Because hypothetically, if you if you have $100,000 in your TFSA and you withdraw it in December, um, in January, you're going to have $100,000 in TFSA room plus the new 2024 amount of $7,000. So you'll have $107,000 in TFSA room come January, which is only in a few weeks. 
rather than if you wait until December and you withdraw that hundred thousand dollars. Sorry, and you if you wait until January to withdraw from that um, TFSA, you're gonna have to wait until the following January to redeposit that January 2025. So if you have and you were looking to redeposit, if you have to keep that in a non-registered account, and now that's accruing gains, that those gains are now going to be taxable rather rather than redepositing into your TFSA. And now those gains are tax-free. So it could actually cost a fair amount if you just wait from December to January to make that withdrawal. Yeah, that's actually a really good point, Mitch, because I think the biggest, the, the, the greatest number of mistakes made with tax savings accounts is people pull money out of them and then they put them back in in the same year. They're not, they often don't know about this, this rule and it's a 1% per month penalty, which is very significant. So if we can, you know, certainly this is the opportunity right now, as you mentioned, to cash them in now. If you feel you're going to have access to the funds to replace the money into the TFSA early next year, what a great time to do it right now. Even if you don't need the funds, pull it out now and put it back in early next year and, uh, you know, take advantage of this time other than waiting around and you, and you have to pay tax and all this growth until 2025. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point right there. And the last one I wanted to mention here is the RSP contribution. Uh, we have a lot of clients that even if they don't need to take it from the RSP, you it might be tax advantageous to do so just to top up your income um, so that your RSP can actually shrink rather than have it continuously grow and potentially have that large tax bomb of 53.5%. Why not take some out of your RSP while you're in a lower tax bracket before you start CPP and OAS? Because then it's just going to be on a larger tax bracket and your RSP is going to get taxed more. So taking some from your RSP before year end, definitely something that we look at for a lot of clients as well. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. Our last segment coming up. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Mitch Fox are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. All right, uh, end of year, we're getting five lessons from who? (laughs) The late Charlie Munger. And for those that don't know who Charlie Munger is, they might know Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett is one of the greatest investors that people know. He's certainly the, you know, the face people recognize and they quote him all the time. But Charlie Munger's been by by his side for 45 years. They met ages ago, way back in 1959, and became quickly best friends back in um, California. And uh, they started uh, a company called Berkshire Hathaway. And Berkshire has uh, bought many companies and it's done extremely well. Um, so, yeah, he lived one month short of 100. And, you know, Warren Buffett's net worth is $120 billion, Okay. It's just an insane amount of money. Uh, Charlie Munger would, did not do nearly as well, I guess. He, he had to settle with $2.3 billion which was Fortune's um, net worth estimate. Now, 
2.3 billion to put that in perspective is still 2300 million dollars so um he left that to whomever. I hope he had a good estate plan, as we talked about earlier. But it was, it was kind of funny. He's got so many lessons. I said five investment lessons. Well, there's just so many. You know, he was asked, you know, what's the secret to a long life? And this was asked to him, oh, about five or six years ago. And uh, he goes, you know what? There's really no secret. You know what? I, I take that back. Avoid crazy. That's the way to live a long life. He said, it's just so easy to slip into crazy. Just avoid it. Well, it seemed like, okay, what the heck does crazy mean? Well, Warren Buffett said, well, really what he was meant was you got to avoid the three L's. Because I know I know Charlie better than anybody. And I know what he's talking about with that. Avoid crazy. My, my partner says there's only three ways a smart person can go broke. Liquor, ladies, and leverage. <laughs> <laughs> In that order? I don't know, actually. Um, but that's the quote that uh, Warren Buffett said. Well, leverage is the borrowing money to invest. And so many people over leverage and they get caught and they don't have enough money and they literally bo go broke. And so, yes, horrible way. And I know Warren Buffett has made many different ways to kind of put that in perspective. One way Warren has said is, you know, when the tides go out, you'll find the naked swimmers. Well, that's kind of a recessionary time. And usually what it means, you're going to find all the people that over leveraged and now they can't make, they have to start selling to take the payments on the loans. You're seeing that now for that matter with interest rates rising, a lot of people can't afford the houses they bought, for example, over leveraged uh, liquor. He didn't really mean liquor per se. Yes. Liquor was one, but just really included all vices such as tobacco. Um, you know, could be many things, but, and he basically just said, my game in life was always to avoid the standard ways of failing. And that was just one of the standard ways, was liquor, tobacco, and other vices. He says he had two minor vices. He could never give up peanut brittle and Diet Coke. <laughs> so, and he was quoted not long ago before he died, says, I'm sure Diet Coke shortens my life a little, but I don't give a damn. <laughs> so now he did live to almost a hundred. So maybe he was going to, maybe he would have made a hundred had he not drank all that diet Coke. That's right. But still pretty good. And, and when, as far as ladies go, it wasn't that he was avoiding women in general. It was simply find the right woman and stick with her. The cost of, of cost of divorce is extremely high. And we don't have to actually go too far to see all, all those train wrecks in the past that have lost a lot of, net worth because of a second or third or fourth marriage uh, you can look at amazon and uh that's one of the biggest you've got the richest person in the world who just split their net worth in half okay so he didn't like crypto he called he, he nicknamed crypto crapple <laughs> and he just said he just did not like it at all he just said it's just not the way he sees it it's just gambling and he really um Warren Buffett credits his friend with shifting his approach to the market. Warren Buffett was always trying to bargain hunt and try to find things at a low price. And he sought to, he sought to buy fair companies at a great price. But because of what Munger, he started buying great companies at a fair price. And that's how Berkshire Hathaway really built its, its, its net worth or, and, and great success. So five lessons that stood out. One was, the cool head wins. 
He was a Harvard-trained lawyer with an exception, exceptional aptitude for math, but he scoffed at the notion that brains alone can make great investors. Um, people with high IQs are often terrible investors because they have terrible temperaments. And that is just patience. And so you have to be very patient. You have to stick with the program. And I know, you know, every investor says stick to the plan. So a lot of success in life comes to knowing what you want to avoid. And there's just so many things that Charlie Munger helped investors, helped people get very wealthy. And I know Warren Buffett wouldn't be where he was or where he is today without Charlie Munger. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson, Don Fox, and Mitch Fox. We have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Thank you, gentlemen. Another great show. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.